Hi, this is Andrew Rimby, Executive Director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. It's so nice for you all to tune in. We only have a few more episodes of our fall to winter season. So we are taking a holiday break, ending with Mary's True Crime and Academia series on December 21st. And you might actually be seeing some of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team together on our social media. So uh, check us out on Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. I heard there's a uh, Ivory Tower Boiler Room holiday vacation in the works as we head on vacation. A birdie told me. <laughs> so welcome to what is going to be such a thrilling Hitchcockian, erotic discussion about sexuality and how the psychological thriller makes its way into discussions around queerness. So many topics are covered. I'm joined with Micah Nemerever today, who wrote These Violent Delights. So he'll dig deep into his psyche and how he approached crafting such a page turner of a novel. So if you haven't, make sure you get your hands on these violent delights. Remember, all of the links in the show notes, they're hyperlinks. So click away. Um, and I'm joined with my guest co-host, Mary DePippi, the chief contributor here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I always love having Mary uh, with any of our book club discussions. So here is a teaser of what's to come with our discussion about these violent delights. So let's hear from Micah. Identity gets so wrapped up in this person um, that you are, you sort of lose sight of yourself in favor of being, uh, doing a performance for your perception of the other person, which is also a performance. <laughs> I, I, I had a few friendships like that as, a teenager for sure. Um, and one thing I really wanted to zero in on when I was like depicting that kind of relationship is that it it's not a straightforward power dynamic a lot of the time. Like there's this idea that there's there, it, it, when relationships like this are depicted, often there's like, a dominant figure who's more charismatic and, and holds a lot of influence over the sort of like insecure, more submissive person. And Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. First, this is our December book club choice. So I'm joined with Mary DePippi, the All Hello. Things Book Club co-host. <laughs> um, and 
I want to introduce our author by first saying that this novel has won so many awards, including a Philadelphia Inquirer 10 big books for the fall. I'm saying that because being from the Philly area, I want to say that award first, <laughs> but a Crime Reads Best Debut of the Year, a Literary Hub Best Book of the Year, oh, an Oprah Daily 42 Best LGBTQ Books of 2020, and so many more awards. Um, and I'm joined with Micah Nemerever, who wrote These Violent Delights. So hi, Micah. Hi, glad to be here. Um, well, the litany of awards, I think, just is a testament to how many intersections of genres this novel really hits. So um, I know Mary and I keep saying, I can't believe like this plot point, is it connected to this idea that Micah um, foreshadowed earlier in the novel? So maybe just starting from the beginning of the novel and to all listening, um, we hope you like spoiler alerts. Um, spoiler, 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 spoilers, spoilers in general. <laughs> um, so the prologue of these violent delights. Did you write it at the beginning or at the end of your um, process? I, I wrote a prologue fairly early in the process. I my my, my process was a little uh, convoluted because I had to learn how not to write a novel before I could learn to write a novel. <laughs> So I, I started kind of playing with it in like 2011 and there was a, a, a bad version of the prologue that I wrote toward the beginning of that. And then a couple of years later, um, I was just like, this isn't really working the way I wanted to. And I threw everything out and started from scratch. Um, I think the prologue was one of the first things I rewrote, but I, I kept tinkering with it over time. So, yeah. Can you... Uh detail what that early version looked like um yeah it's when I was first trying to write the book in general like I had no idea how long form writing worked at all um so there was a lot of like wheel spinning pacing wise like I I I wanted to include all these details I had in my head about the early versions of the characters and just kind of play with every possibility. And so it just, it ended up being a little cluttered. Um, and then the, the second attempt was less cluttered. And then, but I, I really had to learn to be ruthless with self-editing. There's so much that ended up on the cutting room floor. So yeah, it's, it's the way. Yeah, yeah. And I know Mary was very interested in your writing length right like how long it actually took for you to start and then you know finish the manuscript um yeah. so how many years did it take you so you began in 2011 yeah that was like the the first it was it was mostly a bunch of like interconnected vignettes at that point that I thought it'll turn into a novel eventually and then I realized it wouldn't. Um, 2011 to 2013 is when I was doing my MA at Art History so it was like I was balancing a whole bunch of different things and um, so it was sort of off and on. Um, I started the first real draft in 2013 and finished it in 2016 and then rewrote it over the course of the next two years and then sent it out for submission. And so it's like, it was this long 
it was a gauntlet. I don't do anything quickly. So <laughs> yeah. But I feel like that's so like refreshing to hear. Um, not only as someone who is, you know, into like year five of like working on their novel. So like, I, it's nice to hear that. I think a lot of like the public at large have this idea in their head of how long it should take an author to write a book. And it's just like, it's like, okay, yeah, we've got Stephen King. We've got the James Patterson's of the world, you know, writing world. Like not every writer can churn out like one to two books in a year. Like Mm -hmm. that's not always like, I don't even, I'm just like that boggles my mind. So it was so comforting to see that someone else has like a long process because I it oh, is course. like a labor of love, you know? It is, it is. And it's like, I don't know, man, I, I got chores. I don't know how other people <laughs> do it. It's yeah. like, it's like, it's like the laundry never ends. Like I, you've got, you, you've got life. I, I, one of my absolute least favorite pieces of writing advice is you have to write every day or you're not a real writer. Hmm. Um, it, it's, uh, it's BS. Uh, as long as you write, sometimes you're a writer. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, I, I don't know, like this idea of speed in composition. Like I, I, I'm, I'm proud of myself if I write 2000 words a week, honestly, like that's a lot for me. So yeah. no, it is very, um, I agree with Mary. I feel so grounded after knowing about your process because this is now... <laughs> my fifth year fifth or yeah fifth year of writing my dissertation and a lot of it has been more the excitement of the journey I love the journey of okay Mm -hmm. I wasn't I always will say to Mary you know I wasn't really in that headspace to really think about what I'm doing connecting these dots and you know I think that's really important when you're um starting out and you really like I could tell in your novel, there's so much research that you must have gone through um, philosophically, definitely. Like mm-hmm. I, are you a major philosophical fan, Micah? I I am a slightly rusty uh, former philosophy minor, so I, I absolutely like I was that I was very much that college sophomore who like had a lot of really deep thoughts about Nietzsche and wanted to tell you about them Uh, (laughs) (laughs) definitely didn't write about that kind of college anyway uh but you know I so I definitely um it's something I've always been interested in and I still like you know you get half a cocktail into me and I start flailing (laughs) and pontificating it's a lot of fun but um it was I, I, at one point had considered majoring in philosophy and, um, it was, it was always something I was really engaged with. Um, one of my most, like one of the, the teachers I had in college who had like the biggest influence on me was like my philosophy 101 teacher. And, um, yeah, he's, I, I mentioned him in the acknowledgments. He, he passed away far too young. And so I, um, I don't know, I sort of semi-dedicate the book to him because he, I don't know, he taught the kind of philosophy that makes you want to be a better person. And that definitely influenced the book in a lot of ways. It's like, like um, I don't know, thinking about the effect that thinking can have on you on a moral level 
And so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and um, I still will always remember when Julian, what does he say about Plato? Doesn't he call it paleontology or yeah (laughs) as a sort of condemnation with Paul and I am such a platonic fanatic and taught the symposium in my queer poetry course yeah I was so happy that the symposium became such a um I don't know touchstone for Paul's thinking about eroticism yeah yeah he's a lot less of a snobby modernist (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah so it that was for sure kind of this this attitude that I detected in the academy um where like um some people think that forms of thought that reckon more directly with with modern life are because they're more timely are better um and sort of um i don't know so so that was a thing i was kind of thinking about and it's uh i don't know one of the one of the things i studied um in art history especially as an undergrad was italian futurism and kind of this idea of of like throwing away everything old in favor of of like the future and um yeah, I very. I think my dog is coming to visit. Hi, Tilly. Um, hi. Thank you. Oh, we have an appearance I with Micah's dog. We do. We do. We do. And she's okay. Oh, it's good. It humanizes just... the experience. Well, yeah, maybe it animalizes the experience, which might it's be true. appropriate it's in true. this novel. <laughs> but, yeah, and I know Mary had brought up to me um the idea of can you remind me again mary the flame the flame or the twin oh yes the twin the idea of the twin flame um just because in when you when you read you know obviously from paul's point of view um just the way he describes how he feels about julian how the way he looks at his scar and just the idea that they were one person or one being that was split apart and that this whole process is them trying to or at least to Paul anyway is to trying to reattach themselves was that I mean obviously twin flame is like a modern (laughs) term for it I'm sure it's you know there's been mention of it and it's called other things but I was just curious as to like was that the idea or Yeah. yeah Yeah, it was um, definitely uh, influenced by by that part of symposium, and um, that uh, it would be interesting. Like, I th- I think sometimes about about how the story would be framed if it were more from Julian's point of view, because he wouldn't be going to the the paleontological dig of of Plato in order to frame this thing to himself. Like, like um, there's a bit where he talks about um, something. I actually used in my own research this like Freudian idea of he would Freud wouldn't have said dialectical identity, but that's kind of the that's kind of the idea that where um, caring about someone and loving them is like part of you gets shaped around your idea of this person, 
And I think um, that is, I think, I think Julian was being truthful in that line. Like that's, that is the framing that he's coming at it with. Um, so it's, it's, it's similar in the sense of, of um, this kind of intellectual merging, um, but they, they come at it from, from very different angles um, as is their way. <laughs> Yeah. Also, I, I loved their relationship. What was there something that inspired you? Like, was there, you know, a relationship you knew of, whether you were in one like it or something like that? Just because it's so, it's so beautiful, their relationship, even though it's horrible. <laughs> even though it's toxic. It's beautiful as well. Yeah. It's, um, it's something that I have discovered a lot it resonates with a lot of queer readers. Um, I, I was sort of not pleasantly surprised by that because it's not like, but but relieved, I guess, to be in the company of so many people who had at one point had, um, you know, when their own identity was kind of in flux and they weren't really sure what being queer meant to them. Um, sort of forming a really intense um, same gender romantic friendship. Sometimes it's sometimes it's a relationship. Sometimes it's just like that level of intensity without ever coalescing into a capital R romance. But it um, but where your identity gets so wrapped up in this person um, that you. Or you sort of lose sight of yourself in favor of being doing a performance for your perception of the other person, which is also a performance. <laughs> I, I I had a few friendships like that as a teenager, for sure. Um, and one thing I really wanted to zero it on when I was like depicting that kind of relationship is that it it's not a straightforward power dynamic a lot of the time like there's this idea that there's there it, when relationships like this are depicted often there's like a dominant figure who's more charismatic and, and holds a lot of influence over the sort of like insecure more submissive person and um I I I was fairly similar to Paul as a teenager. Um, and the, the person I was involved with was a lot more like um, outgoing and charismatic and charming than I was. And um, that doesn't mean that I wasn't bringing out the worst in them too. Like it was just, it was bad all around. It's like we, we brought out the worst in each other. Um, as always, must disclaim, it never went beyond like stupid teenage cattiness. I've never killed a man, I promise. But <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness. But yeah, yeah. But that this is this is something that kind of happens when like your identity is unstable, and the other person's is too. It's just manifesting in a way that doesn't seem unstable to you and then you just kind of I, I don't know I I've I have since putting the book out in the world I've talked to so many people who are like oh god I thought it was just me who had one of these things and uh, yeah and 
I think too that Paul's or I, you know, from my own queer, specifically gay cisgender male experience, like Paul seemed very psychologically um, troubled by being outed. Like outing is constantly part of maybe his is in his subconscious or it's never really clearly articulated about uh, specific sexuality and language, like homosexual, gay. I mean, it seems like that was a real deliberate choice, Micah. Was it deliberate to really kind of stay out of LGBTQ plus language? Um, I, in the sense of like, it, it just isn't the kind of thing that, that, Paul would use as a framing of his own identity like he's it, it he's definitely gay and he's definitely aware that this is a part of him as a person but he's kind of already I I don't know I I, I wanted to write a story that didn't have like uh as much of a coming out narrative um mm-hmm. just because um especially with Paul in particular I feel like he is a kind of person who like he would have had that process fairly early because he's always been very aware of himself as different from other people in a million different ways and so he he's introspective and alienated in such a way where I I kind of feel like he had that conversation with himself when he was like 12 and and he's he's not in denial it, like it's it's something that he has like he's probably not thrilled about it but he has accepted that this is just how he is mm. and and um and it's sort of I think one reason he is so drawn to Julian is that Julian is like again he's, he's not like saying I'm gay like as a political statement but he's not closeted mm-hmm. like he is a perceptibly queer person um and for Paul I think this is kind of exhilarating because it's like you can exist in the world as like a confident apparently very put together person um and be queer and not feel shitty about it like it's so it that's that's one thing I've I've really thought about is like the fact that with friendships like this, it's often um, that the other person is like a model of queerness that that you don't have because you've just been kind of processing it in silence until suddenly there's there's another queer person <laughs> and they seem to have figured it out because they're so compelling to you that obviously it, so so yeah that's it's definitely a major factor in their relationship that they are both gay and and for Paul it's it's sort of liberating to like he's got all sorts of weird shame and self-esteem issues around Julian but none of them are around the fact that he's gay Mm -hmm. he's like he's he's not closeted with Julian either like they just kind of perceive this about each other and take it for granted and it was it was just a dynamic that I I thought was really interesting and I wanted to explore it in that way because that was sort of more my experience um that it's like I'm queer you're queer what does that mean 
And so, yeah. and I liked how transgressive that you didn't fit a trope. Like this does your novel, these violent delights doesn't fit any trope. And it's so subversive and really, I mean it when you're on the edge of your seat or I was not knowing what's going to happen next. Like I kept thinking the worst of every situation, like, Oh, Paul's now entering Julian's house, like meeting Julian's father. This is, the moment when it's going to be like get out and uh, Paul's kidnapped or you know, <laughs> like I never it's like but you know Paul is in a constant state of anxiety and it really um also I'm you know still I'm in the middle but Mary's finished so she might be spoiling things for me which I said is okay because <laughs> I'm listening to Michael Crouch read um I hear he's your book. Oh, he's wonderful. Or yeah, he actually read PJ Vernon's bathhouse part of that too. And under the rainbow by Celia Lasky. He reads a section. So he's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think he said to say hi to you because we're going to interview him in a few months. Um, But you can say hi to him too. I will. I will. Um, (laughs) And it's, the dramatization, I think, too, of how he reads Paul, I can feel feel the panic and the tension. Um, but I think Mary told me by even not hearing the nuances that there's a state of anxiety just present throughout. Oh, yeah. Um, the I novel. Mean, yeah. And for our book club choices, like. You know, I don't really look too much into it. I like to be surprised. I want I want to be surprised by what the story is. And literally just by the title of it, I was like, all right, something violent is going to happen. Something <laughs> like this. When is it going to happen? But even then, like, I mean, just even when I'm not thinking about the title and I'm just reading through, you're just like, OK, what's going to like, you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop <laughs> at any given point. Very and glad. It is just oh, such a pleasure to read, truly, truly. Yeah. Thank you it so is. much. And maybe I was, well, I'm still just so curious how you bridge the gap in a way of um, what could just easily be a very elite academic historical fiction novel, but somehow becomes this Hitchcockian thriller gothic i mean it's the way you break that julian's preppiness and that stereotype um i mean i'm assuming you draw on your own academic like thinking through your own association with academia yeah yeah it's it's kind of funny because my my undergrad experience was a bit more like Paul's. I was a commuter student living with my family going to the 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 nearby college in my city that gave me a scholarship. Like it was you know it was so I wasn't kind of in that really rarefied atmosphere until I went to grad school in Connecticut. And so that was that was some major culture shock. That's where I learned what preps are. And so, <laughs> like I, I remember and I went to I went to Yukon. I didn't go to one of the fancy fancy like private Connecticut colleges. So I remember like um 
we we were going to an art museum um, in a very posh uh, Connecticut town, which I will not name. Um, but you know, it was like it was like the Italians and the Jews from the big public university. And so we get out of the car onto the sidewalk here, and the looks we get. And I I, I had this moment of oh, I am not really white right now. This is new. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's just like it was that preppy. It's just that waspy. And so it was, it was, it was really a (laughs) it's kind of like landing in Princeton. Yeah. University. I yeah. (laughs) Where that's that I would say is like the most waspy Jersey. uh, Oh yeah. Experience. But and I mean this whole idea of assimilation. Mm-hmm. is also really present with Julian. Um, and I thought it was so intriguing. Like, can you discuss about maybe what it was like thinking about that intersection between Judaism and queerness or even Judaism and um, social class, right? Because we get the upper middle and lower middle ish with Paul like how did you think about those intersections it was um I was always really interested in Jewish identity as like really major touch point for the book um I chose uh the 70s really deliberately as kind of um because I'm really interested in post-war Jewish American identity specifically and kind of this this weird transitional moment where um, y- you you move on from Jews being like very heavily othered to kind of this this provisional whiteness, where in some situations, like um, like some really preppy millions, really like um, like culturally Christian milieu, you're like um you you are still very much other but then in and you know at the same time both the boys uh including paul whose family is not assimilated like they both absolutely have white privilege um in in a way that they might not have earlier in the century um so i was really interested in this kind of moment of tension um and sort of the way that uncertainty can manifest based on uh, both both the class you're born into and like class aspiration. Like the fact that Julian's family assimilates really hard is partly because they, they want access to privilege. Um, and so they're, they're passing basically um, because they want to be able to run in those circles, but there, at, at least in my head, there's also a factor of like, they are fearful because they, you know, it, it's still very much a historical moment where you know what the alternative is to being accepted. And so it, um, yeah, it, it's that tension hangs over both of them and their family lives um, in, in ways that I, I really wanted to explore um, so, 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's, well, I think you do a really nuanced layer job of it. And also in the background, or I found that you, again, why I love when we get to interview writers is it's usually not your intention or you even think about this is how it's going to be interpreted. But I feel that you really allow the reader to fill in gaps from your own, the reader's subjectivity, which I think is the best experience as a reader when everything <laughs> isn't tied up. So I'm even thinking, oh yeah, the DSM, um, the manual um, ends homosexuality as a pathology. So it's like, there's a lot of cultural change shifting, mm -hmm. even with queerness. And um, when also, when were the Nuremberg trials? Oh God, I want to say like 46, it's like uh, later 40s. Um, so it, uh, it's one, one thing uh, in American history that was very, that was timed really, um, really closely with when the book is set is uh, 1973 is, is when the, the general public became aware of the Tuskegee experiments. Mm. So, so like it's, and and um, and then like uh, another thing that comes up a lot is like uh, you know war atrocities in Vietnam. Like like there's this mm -hmm. there's this idea um, of because World War II was like the good war. Obviously, America's special, and we don't do things like that. And as I. It's, it's a moment historically when it's becoming clear that yes, we absolutely do. This is what people do under specific circumstances. It's like, um, you know, I, I don't know. I wrote my MA thesis on, on Weimar Germany. And I always tell people that the scariest thing I learned was that Germany is not special. There's absolutely nothing about German culture as as a thing like it didn't make this happen but the neuroses of the west and very specific social circumstances um they when they curdle into something terrible they do it in the same way over and over again like this is this is um you know america's not special and um and so, I don't know, that was, that was something I really was interested in. It's like, it, it's not just like this one-off in the middle of the 20th century. It's like the 20th century is this continual process of excavating the horrors of, of um, human nature and also human nature under western capitalism in particular like other other places fuck up differently <laughs> <You know? It's> <laughs> yeah well it's like what margaret atwood says about the handmaid's tale that everything that is in the handmaid's tale had happened in history yeah like there's mm -hmm. nothing unfortunately created nothing that's 
manufactured and well okay well you opened up pandora's or maybe i'll say the weimar republic's box in this case with (laughs) your work that you did for your masters and i know mary and i have so many questions about the social psychology experiments because you know spoiler alert to everyone this is (laughs) where we really dig deep um and I was reminded so much of my social psych um, lessons in high school, um, especially about Milgram, right? So Milgram, I mean, we should ask you, Micah, to explain who Milgram was. Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Um, yeah, this, I, I was also briefly a psychology major and, and the <laughs> social psychology made me too depressed. So I switched, um, but yeah, the, the Milgram experiment, it, um, it was right after World War II. Um, and Milgram was a researcher, I think at Yale, who, um, he, he, I think he had already hypothesized that like it's not that it's not that Germans just shut up and take orders to do atrocities it's that it's that there's something about how people interact with authority that makes them do things that they would not do of their own volition and so he set up this this uh this scenario, um, like this experiment scenario where the, the actual, like the, the research subjects thought they were participating in like a memory experiment um, where they, they were tasked with, okay, whenever your partner gets a question wrong, you have to push this buzzer and give them an electric shock. And, and um, uh, of course the other person was an actor um, and the experiment was actually to see how far they would go in terms of like increasing the wattage and and like ignoring the the, the guy asking them to stop because the the person in the lab coat told them they had to keep going, mm-hmm. and and it's like I think it came out to two thirds of people, um, you know they they didn't like it but they did they turned it up to max wattage even though there was like a little red bar on it that said this is dangerous and, and the and the person they were shocking shocking like uh, kept kept asking them to stop and eventually went quiet on the other side of the wall and 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 then like in response to the silence of of not answering the question the research is like okay you still have to shock them. like like they make this really just absolutely horrible like uh, situation where it's you know they because you're being told to do it 
um, and this person is in a position of authority over you, that a lot of people just like, um, they didn't, they, they might've asked questions about it, but they, they did it. And so, um, and, and this was, the study is like, uh, in social psychology, sort of notorious, like it's, it's, that there are questions about the ethics of it that, um, like, like, is deceiving someone into thinking that they're torturing another person, is that worth it for the point that you are deriving from this? And, um, yeah, so, so it's controversial from an ethical perspective, but also, like, what it says about ethics, um, sort of good to know. So <laughs> it's true. So it's, 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 true. it's a whole, yeah. It's, and I, it's a recurring uh, motif in the, in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I feel like <clears throat> it's such an important experiment on, well, I think it's usually, or I'm trying to remember when I was taught it, it was about authority and power differentials. And that really is so pertinent here that I kept thinking is Julian Milgram, like is Julian kind of the reincarnated Milgram <laughs> mm-hmm. trying to test to see how far, how far Paul, especially when Paul um, just physically lashes out at Julian and is beating him to a pulp. Um, is that him trying to get Paul to be that test? This, um, I guess it would be the participant or the, you know, the participant just shocking. Like, is he supposed to be shocking Julian? Like, instead of not seeing Julian behind the wall, he actually is front and center with the test subject. And I, I just feel there's so many unanswered questions that. It's a very interesting read. Um, it's, uh, I definitely was interested um, in the fact that, um, you know, both Paul and Julian have the sense of like, um, like other people's obedience and other people's conformity um, leads to basically every horrible thing in history. You you need to free yourself from this this paradigm of letting yourself be told what to do, and yet their internal dynamic is very much influencing each other to do things that they would not ordinarily have done. Um, not out of deference to authority, but out of sort of, I, I don't know, like this combination of uh, profound insecurity and um, pickling and toxic masculinity. So, <laughs> so it, yeah, it, it was, um, it was interesting to, to play with this idea of like, maybe like it isn't just obedience that influences people to do horrible things like they have this idea that that's the case but it's um but this this weird little emotional microclimate they've built together mm-hmm. doesn't really involve authority in in a straightforward way and yet it still has a similar effect so yeah yes And there is also, 
I'm going to try to remember. It's in part one, but um, the butterfly obsession that Paul has. I wanted to ask about that. So go ahead. That was Mary's. That was such an interesting point in the book. And honestly, up until that point that Andrew just mentioned where Paul beats the crap out of Julian, I thought he was actually going to strangle him like in a similar way. I mean, but that was, again, that whole process. Was that something you have done in the past? Do you know someone who does that? No, like, I, just I so am... eerily specific. Wait, with the butterfly <gasps> I... or? Yes, in the process of like collecting the specimens and how he kills them so, with, so the wings don't get damaged. Like it was just so thorough. I read some very spooky instructional websites for butterfly collectors. Of like, <laughs> here's how you do what I do. And it's like, uh, and, and these websites also had you know the, the disclaimers about like insects don't really feel pain and I'm like okay um, let's not gonna unpack that too much but okay <laughs> um uh yeah so it I uh that that is something I would absolutely never be able to do myself I I um I I was really interested in in sort of how it symbolizes um for Paul this sort of like he's he's willing to do damage in pursuit of beautiful things um which is just it's it's um sort of a a recurring (laughs) he's got he's got this this ongoing connection in his head between beauty and destruction that is also mm-hmm. very very Nietzschean <laughs> it's like don't read Nietzsche until you're 22 kids but <laughs> it's a good it's a good PSA <laughs> yeah but um <clears throat> yeah that he he thinks of of beauty I guess is something that you need to secure by conquest which is and that that seeking beauty is like inherently violent for that reason and so it um so i i, I liked the the i don't i don't know i i don't believe in subtle symbolism i just went for it like this this <laughs> the, this thing that he does where he he um he try he needs to take a beautiful thing and keep it by any means necessary in order to feel like he can keep the beauty itself mm-hmm. so yeah it was i just thought it was so interesting just because between like the spe- bug specimen collecting and his father's suicide like it just to me that opened my eyes right away to like oh yeah this guy he's okay with death death does not bother him (laughs) whether he's taking someone else's something else's or himself he just has this very hyper awareness of it and I wouldn't say that like it influences everything he all of his decisions but it's there's always something there about death hanging around in the background of Paul yeah 
which is really cool i think personally because like i mean i think i don't think most people would think that like bug collecting or specimen bug collecting would be like not necessarily like abnormal just because that's kind like that's a hobby that people have but when you really dissect it down to what it is yeah you're like oh this is a little yeah. good word okay. choice mary dissect <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> you know yeah valid yeah. scientific reasons to do it also slightly ghoulish but you know, <laughs> and, um very yeah and i think i think um there's something to the fact that Paul wants these things that he loves to to be permanently there, mm-hmm. um, no matter what it means doing to them. Mm. Versus, like he's he's very um, he's horrified by the idea of the impermanence of things that he loves. Like mm-hmm. like he's I I think his father's suicide goes a long way toward explaining um some things about like specifically why he he grasps so hard at trying to get the things he loves to stay like it it it's an obsession for him like with how he interacts with julian too like he, he's mm-hmm. um partly because julian is you know he, he does even kind of deliberately cultivate an idea of himself as sort of sort of aloof and and um capricious but like that's that's kind of how he wants to be perceived but that means that Paul is like fanatically obsessed with the idea that this 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 beautiful thing he loves is going to escape somehow unless he does something and Mm -hmm. um Mm. Which I have to say at the end of the novel, that kind of like the ending, the last two parts kind of made me mad at Paul. Like, I feel like I started the novel being mad at Julian. And then at the end, I was just like, Paul, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? <laughs> I love that Even- reaction. <laughs> that makes me very happy. Uh- it was like, uh- even though, okay, like, all right. Yeah, they did this very horrible thing. They kill this guy, you know. But at the same time, like in my mind, I was just, I guess, being a romantic and was just like, but Julian's doing this because he loves you. Why can't you just trust him right now? Like, I just felt like <laughs> towards the end, I was like, OK, can you just get there now, Paul? Like, can you just get there to the part where you trust him and then you can run off and <laughs> into the sunset, which that doesn't happen. People spoilers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which that ending, I don't I kind of like want to like wanted to tear up a little bit even though I wasn't entirely sure what it was supposed to mean like I had a couple different ideas um with the circling of the first move being that being which you find out is the problem in this Kaplan versus Klaus oh man I'm gonna butcher it (laughs) Kozlowskis Kozlowskis thank you (laughs) In that chess move, because, you know, in, in the novel, Julian is obsessed with trying to figure out where it went wrong, why the one player should have absolutely won, but because of one thing that they're not, he wasn't sure how, you know, what it was, something happened. 
And when he circles that, like me, I was just like, oh my gosh, are you saying that like you never should have met or you never should have killed this guy? Like for me, it had that double meaning. But either way, I was still like, I'm sad. (laughs) (laughs) No, Julian, come back. (laughs) And that we're sympathetic for murderers. Like it Mm -hmm. just, that's something in your novel, Micah. How did you create protagonists who we actually are so emotionally linked to, even though we know that they are playing from almost a serial killer? Not (laughs) serial, but it's, I did have this one point where I thought, oh, is this going to become a Charlie Manson almost, (laughs) you know, bio? out of Charlie Manson's bio because there is the obsession with bugs and how to kill something, but maintain its beauty. And then, so there were so many different movies and novels that I was turning to. Like at one point I thought it was almost, I don't know if you remember that film stir of echoes. Oh, I didn't see that. But Oh, so, so frightening, but Basically, there's a woman who's um, murdered and then kept behind a wall. Um, so it kind of has like an Edgar Allan Poe, you know, yeah, <laughs> reminiscent right? of Edgar Allan Poe. But it also, I definitely could feel so much um, of Hitchcock. And it seems like Hitchcock is one of your... Um, idols <laughs> i i am a big fan of specifically the gay hitchcocks <laughs> like oh. um i i um strangers on a train is so much fun i i i and, uh, but i think i think my favorite hitchcock movie is rope uh which is wildly mm. underrated because it it didn't get what it didn't get great reviews at the time but it's like it's like so gay and funny and and fucked up and and um you know i i think hitchcock is definitely an influence on on how i was approaching the book especially in terms of pacing um patricia highsmith same thing like like i they're they're both just excellent at parceling out information and pacing revelations and events in a way where everything feels both tense and inevitable and so that's absolutely you know what i what i had aspired to um so yeah it's um i i would say that the emotional texture of a hitchcock movie had less of an effect because they're 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 sort of you know not I mean, I wouldn't call the book warm and fuzzy, but it's, <laughs> but it's it's more about the machinery than about empathizing exactly. It's more analytical. Um, so I don't know. I another another film I thought a lot about while I was writing is uh, Heavenly Creatures, which was uh, Peter Jackson's big breakout before he did Lord of the Rings. It's it's um, 
I still think it's his best movie, but. Um, oh, I need to add it to my list. What's it about? Oh, it's so good. It's, it's you know, it, it's a very similar dynamic to what Paul and Julian have. I, I found out after I watched it, it was based on a real case. But of these, um, of these, these two girls um, in New Zealand who form this really intense friendship where they, they build this elaborate imaginary world together. And uh, mm-hmm. this was the 50s. So their parents are like, this is kind of gay. Uh, let's try and separate them. And then this, this culminates in um, they, in order to, they thought in order to stay together, they had to murder one of the girl's mothers. And so it's, it's, it's a really interesting movie in the sense that it's, it really, um, doesn't devalue this, this genuine, like, love that the characters have for each other and like they're you know they're desperate to stay together and you see why it's because they are just profoundly identity consumingly important to each other um and the the sincerity of feeling does not stop it from turning into something horrible Mm. and so that was that was um definitely a major influence on on the book like in terms of in terms of the emotional dynamic Mm. well and I think I've just been in such a thriller horror well I think I'm always in thriller territory (laughs) but I had just right before I started um you know reading slash listening to your novel I had seen last night in Soho and that is such a trip of a film that just came out. And again, there's a type of mirroring and I'm starting to realize there's a lot of this motif of um, like you're saying obsession between two um, who they see themselves in each other, but then it really takes, it's not just this deep bond and it's not about, you know, being partners forever romantically, it's because you could have a very Julian and Paul, Thelma and Louise, but it doesn't take that type of, you know, um, even though that ends in death, which we always forget. um, There just is something off from the beginning of the novel. And that's why I think the prologue it's so cinematic, Micah, and I was walking alone in like a nice fall scene when I was hearing the prologue in the park, and I just kept looking over my shoulder. Oh, no. I was like, this is a little frightening. Um, And poor Charlie. Uh, I mean, kind of poor Charlie, but I mean, yeah, I guess poor Charlie. (laughs) Well, for me right now, I'm still... A little sympathetic to him, but I might change my mind probably. Um, but he's not the worst, but he's not the best either. Yeah. So, <laughs> what's what's really um, this is sort of a tangent, but something that's really funny is like is uh, in reaction to you know the, the historical setting, like it was very normal to like hitchhike in the 70s like this was way before the PSAs like don't hitchhike you'll get murdered and but then I've got I've got you know younger 
readers who were raised on stranger danger who who are like who the fuck takes a ride from a stranger at one in the morning and i'm like um cis dudes in the 70s (laughs) people to whom it is not going to occur that they might get murdered like but yeah so so i just i've i've sort of sort of bleakly funny to me that the readers are just like what is he doing <laughs> but it's something he absolutely would not question yeah. but um, but how we know or maybe just having done some investigation into your novel before reading but you make it pretty apparent that Paul and Julian have something to do with this and we can start to kind of piece together who's in what role in this situation in the hitch hiking that goes wrong um, (laughs) that I found you're already just questioning every motive of Paul and Julian and we were becoming detectives as a reader and it was just such an exciting technique. Like that's why I am just crossing my fingers that this becomes a movie. <laughs> I would love to see it because as a movie. I can already see it all play out from, Aww. I don't know. It feels very M night Shyamalan for some reason, <laughs> but like his good movies. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I love all of them, but yes, like the sixth sense. <laughs> okay. Well, is that something you've thought a lot about Micah is if, have you thought about the filmic or cinematic, especially with your experience in queer cinema? Have you thought about that when it comes to your novel or are you too close to it? Um, I, I have thought uh, less except in very abstract terms about like the possibility of it actually getting adapted to the screen. Like there's, there's a screen rights agent and everything. Like it's, it's, it's always possible but I I do know that when like I'm a very visual person and when I was writing like I I can kind of see it like a movie inside my head like that was um it's I don't know I to film because then it's like okay yeah here's a definitive person that I can attach this name to and not just the you know one that I made up in my head yeah you know (laughs) yeah it would be very cool and also, I don't know, actually, if I could watch it, I might mm. just like, I might just like fizzle away like steam into the ether and be unable to <laughs> just because feelings. <laughs> well, that's why you should be the screenwriter. In that case, uh, in that screenwriter, case. director, just just give Micah all of the controlling roles. Yeah, you should. You know, he needs to be in charge of the whole project. You could do it Blair Witch style. (laughs) Just start filming on your cell phone. (laughs) I I, I always thought that if I had a completely different personality, I would love to be a movie director. But I I, I fear confrontation and hate bossing people around. So it's it's just, yeah. But if it weren't for, you know, my fundamental personality, being a film director would be fun. (laughs) (laughs) You know... (laughs) Yeah. So um, we are nearing the end of our interview, which ev- always goes so quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. Right, Mary? It always goes so quickly, which means it was, we hit all the, you know, major parts. 
of your novel, Micah. But again, everyone listening, you need to buy or, you know, purchase the audiobook version, depending on what mood you're in to consume these violent delights. Um, maybe you want to listen and create your own film <laughs> version. But I mean, for my final question, I'm just curious for someone who picks up these violent delights, what is the one thing you would really, I don't want to say you want your reader to get from it. Cause that sounds so cliche, but maybe is there a certain quality of your novel that it would please you um, if your readers came back to you and emailed you or did something on social media and said, oh, Micah, this novel made me think about such and such differently? Like, is there a, a specific quality? Um, I, I definitely want readers to to not sympathize with the boys' actions, but empathize with them as people. Um, I, and and that's that's just not how some people are going to read them, and that's fine. But like, that's ideally like what I would like the book's like ideal reader to take from it is like that this is that I hope they experience it as like an empathetic book because that was like the big motivating factor for me was sort of um I don't know looking at looking at moral moral turmoil and moral failure as something that's human um and so that's yeah that's sort of what I was angling for so it's nice when that works for people yeah so everyone send your feedback when it comes to empathy to Micah, <laughs> but only when it comes to the empathy. <laughs> Nothing about, you know, plot points, <laughs> but Mary, what is oh, your, oh, they can do that too. Okay. <laughs> Send all your inquiries to Micah. <laughs> but uh, Mary, do you have a final question for Micah? Um, my final question, I think is more going to be about Julian's family. What was because obviously in some ways they are very stereotypical rich people and how you would expect them to kind of act. But Henry kind of, his brother, he's a little different to me just because in the end he does wind up sending money to his brother. Like he tries to act like he doesn't care so, so much, but he definitely does what was the process of like creating Julian's family versus creating Paul's? Um, I, I sort of reverse engineered Julian's family based on, it's like who, who, who could, could make a child this fucked up. And, <laughs> so it's, and it's, it was definitely tricky writing them because like, I, um, I think that Paul, as the point of view character, is just not inclined to to um, investigate their whole deal too closely. Um, Henry was sort of the the way I was able to kind of hopefully um, make it clear that there is some emotional there there are emotions 
and this family besides the parents being controlling and that um and and he's I don't know I'm very fond of Henry he's he's, he's a dork um but <laughs> <laughs> but that they are in, in my head they're very fearful people and like um in kind of a twisted way they do care about their kids um and so and it doesn't matter because it, it fucks them up so it, 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 i don't know maybe that's like the overarching overarching theme i had in mind for the book is like love doesn't actually make you do good things by default yeah things that's are true. fucked up that yeah, is yeah. that is things a good... are fucked up a novel yeah well, i was gonna say i always do like to ask if you're working on something right now maybe these loving delights <laughs> uh, i i have a couple things percolating right now i've i i took kind of a a break from writing for various reasons um and i'm kind of trying to dive back into it i've got a few different ideas um i am trying not to promise things because uh, yeah i one of the off offers i got on the book was like for a two book deal and i ended up turning it down because i i was like i don't know if i could write a book under contract and it turns out no i could not um the pressure i'm putting on myself is more than enough uh so <laughs> thank god um no disrespect to that editor but yeah i <laughs> so so yeah i'm kind of i'm trying to take it day by day and see what materializes um i've got a lot of imaginary friends i want to write about so mm. we'll just see what happens with them <laughs> well thank you so much micah thank you um and everyone listening again please support Micah, by getting your hands on these violent delights or getting your fingers, you know, playing the chapters of the audiobook. <laughs> um, and, you know, make sure you link out to link to Michael Crouch when you're listening to the audiobook because Michael is also like Micah. Woo, Michael and Micah, there you go, um, <laughs> are very responsive on Instagram. So, um, yeah, this was just so incredible. And, you. you know, you manifesting so that these violent delights takes many forms. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we hope you all enjoyed listening. And wow, this felt we got into so much nuance of the psyche of each character. So <laughs> a lot to ponder. <laughs> Thank you, Micah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room team includes me, Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, our Chief Contributor, and Jaren Usta, our Marketing Director. I want to remind you all to please like, share, follow our podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Please do follow us on Instagram, which is at Ivory Tower Boiler Room, on Twitter, at Ivory Boiler Room. And if you can, please do support us, whether that be spreading the word about our podcast, word of mouth really helps. Whether it be sharing on your social media accounts, that really helps too, please do it. And also, if you can financially support us, we appreciate it. 
There is a link to donate to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room at the bottom of the show notes. And we will make sure that we shout you out if you help financially support us. Thank you so much. You really all, by listening, are helping spread the word about the public humanities and the vision that I have here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So I really hope you all are enjoying the episodes. And message me. I really love to hear from you. You can even email us at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com with your excitement about the podcast. Maybe you have an interview request. Maybe you want to be interviewed. Reach out to me. I'm always interested. I'm all ears. And I want to now conclude with our new theme song, Sagittarius, composed by Anne-Sophie Anderson. And there is a link to Anne-Sophie Anderson's promo video for Seasons, which is actually her full-length composition that includes every astrological sign as a composition. So Sagittarius is just one piece. And Mary DePippi in her True Crime in Academia includes Scorpio. So make sure you listen to True Crime in Academia on Tuesdays to hear Scorpio and also hear Mary's exciting true crime deep dives. Okay, so here is Sagittarius, and I wish you all out there peace and happiness, and thanks again for supporting. (laughs) 